and welcome to a brand new episode of Third Degree Burn, podcast about all things John Byrne. My name is Brian Hughes, and at my side here, uh, electronically, is Tim Elliott. Say hi, Tim. Howdy. Tonight we're going to cover, or today, or tomorrow, or yesterday morning, or whenever you listen to this, we're going to cover... Uh, a very early bit of work from John Byrne from, looks like, 1975, the Charlton comic series Doomsday Plus One, Issue Two. And I, I, I tell you, I, I, uh, I got a little goofy thinking about this because, uh, you know, when, when I first started really collecting John Byrne and, and looking around, I know that, that I found this in the form of reprints, uh, which I think were called the Doomsday Squad. Mm-hmm. That's from the '80s, I think. Yeah, they they reprinted. Of course, it was gorgeous, but still, I was able to find uh, a couple issues of of the actual book. I think I found issue three first, and then eventually I found two at a comic book John uh, thing that he did. Where you know, this is a guy that would come come around and get a, a ballroom at a, at a cheapy hotel, and you basically paid ten cents an issue. And so I would just go and bring a, a a whole whole long box with me and fill it with books. You know, I, I get maybe, you know, a hundred dollars worth of books. Yeah. You know, at a, at a dime a piece. And I, I, I invariably would pick up things like, uh, I picked up multiple, multiple copies of, uh, all the issues of man of steel and multiple copies of, uh, Burns Hulk run at that time. And it was, it was great because shortly after I did that, they were uh, being, you know, people were asking, you know, five dollars for them, and I was actually able to unload a whole bunch of those and, and, uh, you know, pay for some car work. <laughs> of course, that was a long, long time ago. <laughs> but um, yeah, I remember, I remember being able to pick those up, and I really enjoyed. The, I, I mean, I liked the the reprints a whole lot, Zoom Squad reprints, and because uh, they were just gorgeous. And then when I got around to getting these, I, I had a hard time opening them up because uh, the quality of them was just really not that good. I mean, the, the paper stock that they used was not that great. And, of course, um, from what we've been reading, uh, what I found out, at least, is that the the process of printing them was done in a, a place where they actually printed cereal boxes. But, you know, that being said, you know, this is 1975 when they were doing this, and the comic book industry was in the throes of a lot of change that was going on. The big two, DC and Marvel, were trying to find, you know, better and different ways of, of producing their books while keeping them still affordable. Uh, companies like Charlton and I'm not sure, you know, what other companies were really, really big at the time aside from the company that made Archie Comics. And um, now it was it was Charlton that also had like Blue Beetle and uh, Captain Adam. A lot of those characters that migrated into DC, the ones that they used for the Watchmen, you know, because all the—I mean, I mean—all the characters the Watchmen are is just a a a, a, cha- a subtle change in the characters. You know, the Blue Beetle was the Owl, Captain Adam was Doctor Manhattan, uh, the Question was uh, Rorschach, and I guess was it Deadly Nightshade was a Silk Spectre. I, I think I, I could be wrong on that, but. Uh, you know, they, I mean, they had some good characters and they had some great writers and artists, uh, you know, that, I mean, we know that Roger Stern and Byrne and Bob Layton all worked there. And of course, you know, we had the, some of the greats, uh, Steve Ditko and 
Well, I know there was a quote I found on, on Burns' website that I thought was really interesting, if you'd like me to read that here. Yeah, this is from uh, Burn Robotics, and it was him talking just about Charlton, you know, in general. And he says, Charlton was always the little company that couldn't quite. Over the years, they had a fine stable of artists, Steve Ditko, Jim Aparo, Dick Giordano, to name but three, and produced some interesting books, Captain Adam, Space Cowboy, and their spooky books were always fun, but somehow they never caught on. Perhaps it was the abominable printing, which, yeah, was what I was talking about. In any case, Charlton was, when I got there in the mid-70s, a kind of super fanzine environment where an artist like me could practice his trade, working out the bumps and rough edges, and yet get paid for his efforts. The working environment was always supportive. Joe Gill actually invited me to rewrite his scripts in any way I felt would serve the stories better. And the people, always professional. It was fun working at Charlton. I'm sorry the current state of the industry will not allow such companies to exist anymore. And that's it. Now, he did a lot of titles when he was there. I mean, he was doing the, the Raj 2000 stories that were in the back of the, the E-Man, E-Man books. E-Man books. Uh, Valley of the Dinosaurs, Wheelie and the Chopper Bunch. Wasn't he doing, like, Emergency and... He did Emergency after he did this because they, mm-hmm. they said Emergency came along uh, at the... At the end of that show's, you know, couple of years, seasons left. Korg, 70,000 BC, um, which that was a TV TV show also. Well, didn't. I don't know. I know Valley Korg. of Dinosaurs is like, I guess, We the Chopper Bunch, where that was based on a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Right. Crazy. Crazy. Well, but, I think uh, Charlton was like, if you want to, an analog would be, Oh, blank his name. Uh, Rod, he's the film producer director, Roger Corman. Roger Corman. Yeah, yeah. That 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 makes perfect sense. Right. There. He he uh, he brought a lot of big names. Started working for Corman, and they went on to do bigger and better things in their own right. So I think Charleston was that same way. A lot of the artists and writers started there, moved on to the big two, and that's of course obviously I'm sure the money was better there. It's why they would move on. But it's it's a nice as. As it seems like Burns said in his in his in his uh, quote, he seemed to have a little more, I guess, creative freedom. He could do kind of what he wanted to do, without having to stick to the you know the house policy of you can only do such and such with a character. You know, it's interesting to use the Roger Corman analogy there because you know, just last week, um, my son and I sat down and watched uh, the old Roger Corman film Galaxy of Terror. That's a little uh, adult for your kid, isn't it? Uh, well, he, my, my kid is pretty good about, you know, censoring himself. He doesn't like adult stuff. So if he thinks it's about to go adult, he closes himself off so he doesn't see anything. And he's like, Daddy, tell me when it's done. <laughs> you know, so I have to let him know he can watch and listen again because he, he, he doesn't like it. So it's, it's uh, you know, and there was one scene in there that was really, really kind of, you know, just beyond beyond that, and the other scenes that they had where they where they killed people, you know, the effects were so shoestring budget kind that you know it didn't bother him. Not like something you know that's out today where it'd be a big bloodletting would be. Yeah, they couldn't afford it. Bothersome. I mean, watching Joni Cunningham explode, that was about as bad as it got. Um, now there was the 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 worm rape scene. And he, 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 the moment that, that her top came off, he was like, okay, I'm shut down. You know, that's a little, when watching it. But the thing about that movie is, you know, James Cameron did uh, a lot of special effects and art direction on that. And he was, 
learning anything that he could during that time. He was picking up any trade that he could and trying to learn how they did every every aspect of it. And Corman just let have him like free run of the place. And he was known as this intense little kid that just, you know, was was absorbing everything. And then finally he got to direct um, Piranha 2. And um, that didn't go so well for him. He actually got uh, locked out of the editing bay on that. And uh, they ended up making a cut of their own based on what had been filmed. But uh, he did talk, uh, I think it was Gail Ann Hurd into to financing his uh, Terminator project. But, I mean, the thing is, is like, you know, looking at Charlton Comics and Roger Corman, uh, his production company, it's, it's interesting because I've always compared John Byrne to James, to James Cameron. I always thought he was like the James Cameron of the comic book industry. And so it was, I just found it an interesting um, analogy there that you brought that one yeah, up. Yeah, but unlike Cameron, Burns at least still producing stuff. He hasn't decided to kind of shut himself off and just produce one movie every you know ten years. Well, you can look at at Burn doing his Star Trek stuff as Cameron doing Avatar, and I'm, I'm talking about the the New Vision stuff because he's not doing conventional comic books he's doing something that's avant-garde that's different that's not anybody else is doing like what he's doing but i'll bet you we're going to get a bunch of copycats here pretty soon those are more of the kind of committee books yeah because they're not going to be i mean once he gets the the art figured out it's not going to be as expensive to produce as comic book work but but the problem with that i think would be Anything you're going to do is going to be licensed material. Right. So you're going to have trouble with some license, unlike if you're producing something just on your own, then you can just draw whatever you want. And- right. But again, he's working with, I mean, they're, we're talking about like IDW and companies like that that thrive on getting licensed material. That's their, that's, well, it's that's, a lot like Charlton did a lot of their, their stuff was when they tried to do it through their, when they were trying to go on, this is, when this came out, it was kind of after they kind of tried their superhero run and they were going more with the obviously there were this is my, I think the biggest influence on this is Commandy, but mm-hmm. it's that whole it's that whole seventies post apocalyptic uh kind of storytelling that was yeah. so prevalent in the seventies. Yeah. Now this particular issue, there's um a couple months back and I, I don't know if anybody remembers and I'll probably repost it. I've also reposted this on the the John Byrne Fans Unite page. Uh, on Facebook, but I did a side-by-side comparison of the black and white penciled art versus the colored uh, comic book printed page version that got printed. And you'll see just a huge dramatic difference between what they, what, you know, what they produced and what he had done initially. I don't, did you ever see that when I put that out there? If I did, I don't, I don't recall it didn't yeah, I'll just too much to that. Anyway, is it this uh, issue or is it, or is it all six issues, or what art did you post? Uh, I I posted a, a page from this issue here, issue two. Okay. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll see if I can grab it for you and, and get it to you while we're while we're going through this. But um, in the meantime, um, you got anything else to cover before we dive into this? No, no, I don't think I don't have anything anything new. So why don't we we'll, we'll take a break. Play a promo, come back, and I will give us a little synopsis of Doomsday Plus One, number two. Excellent.
1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked. And young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars Story, monthly at mystarwarsstory.com. And we're back. Yes, we are. And we're going to let Tim give us a synopsis of Doomsday Plus One, Issue Two. All right. And I give a little preface that I picked. Instead of picking one, this is our earliest one. This is our, I believe, our earliest book we've covered, earliest burn book we've covered. And it's our first Charlton book we've covered. Well, the the Fantastic Four story that we did. Predates this? Predates this by about... uh, Two years. Okay, so this is our earliest published work. Yeah, this is the earliest professional work that we've covered, that's for sure. All right. And I picked this only because it's got a lot of cool robots in it <laughs> over the first one. And I found the writing a little uh, easier, better in this one than I found in the first one. All right. This is, as we said, Doomsday Plus One, issue number two. It is from Charlton Comics. It has a cover date of September 1975, a sale date of June 1975, and that may be that may be accurate, may not be. We have different information sources, so we're going to go with June. Yeah. Our writer is Joe Gill. Our artist is John Byrne, and our editor is George Wildman, who, as far from my research, he's the one that had the idea to create this, and he got with Byrne. So Byrne, I guess, is considered a co-creator on this book. Now. As far as I know, did Byrne do his own? I can't find. Did he do the inking on this, or is that? Yeah, he he did he did his inking on it, and you can tell that it was, it was definitely early on in his career because he had very thick lines for the inking. Yeah, it's some parts are a little muddy, but he also did the lettering. As far as um, as far as I can tell, this is this is if you're looking for as far as I know, you can only find this in the original. It was reprinted when they reprinted these again in '78 as issue number eight, which is a basically a re, uh, reprint of issue number two. And then, as you stated er, uh, earlier, they reprinted them in the 80s as uh, Doomsday Squad. Squad. And what I thought was interesting, that when they reprinted these, it went six issues, it was canceled. They waited two years, they reprinted the first six issues as seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, through 12. Yeah. And there's speculation that they reprinted those because that's when Byrne was on... X-Men, and he was just really starting to come into his own and become very popular, so they thought, I guess, they were going to do a little bandwagon jumping and decided to reprint some of his stuff. I don't blame him for that. You know, he's popular, might as well try to get another bite of the apple. Yeah. All right, uh, at the same time this came out, he also did a backup story, which he'd done several of the Raj 2000 story. It's called The Sog in E-Man number 10. And he did Valley of the Dinosaurs number three, which is based on a Hanna-Barbera cartoon, which looks like it's based on Sid Marty Cross, Land of the Lost. 
All right, I'm going to give a little prologue to kind of set up the story because some people may not be familiar with these books. All right, our prologue, which is basically issue one. The year is 1996, and it's the end of the world as we know it. A madman named Rokus, who's a South American dictator, fearing he's going to be deposed, decides to set the world ablaze when he launched his country's only nuclear missiles. One was aimed at New York, the other at Moscow. The President of the United States and the Soviet leader, believing that each had attacked the other, launched their entire arsenal. But hours before the end, three astronauts were shot into space on a re- uh, in an experimental cap- capsule to do some research, do some experiments and research, and and from orbit they watch as the Earth glows bright and dies, real Terminator style stuff. Our three astronauts are Captain Boyd Ellis, astropilot, his fiance Jill Malden, radiation specialist, Ikea Yoshida, a young Japanese physicist. And the three survivors, having limited supplies in their capsule, are forced to return to Earth after they see the Earth perish. They land slash crash in Greenland. The temperature of the Earth has risen due to the nuclear fires and the polar ice caps are melting. Most of the Earth is flooded, real water world type stuff. On a melting Greenland, our trio is attacked by a reanimated woolly mammoth that had been frozen in the glacier, but are saved by a reanimated goth warrior from the 3rd century named Kuno. The three befriend the hunky savage in our quartet. Quartet finds a boat and makes their way to Canada. On the open sea, they're attacked by a jet fighter. Boyd identifies as one of theirs. Real Cold War stuff. On land, they borrow, steal a car, and drive to the closest Canadian airbase in hopes of following the plane back to its base. This is where our issue starts. That was issue one. Set up the premise that it's been a nuclear war, the Earth has been destroyed, these three survivors were in a capsule and they crashed back on Earth, and now they're going to try to find their way. So, issue two open, uh, picks up there, and it's called A Faceless Foe. Our story picks up at an airbase in Nova Scotia with the three astronauts and one goth warrior are checking over the planes. Captain Boyd wonders if the plane that attacked him was an automated defense, or is it being controlled? Cue math sinister music. We cut to a subterranean base in the Ural Mountains, which are in Russia, where an army of robots are boarding a large transport. Their destination is Canadian Air Base. Their orders are kill all humans. Real, insert your favorite Terminator movie here stuff. Over the airbase, the robots use conventional parachutes to drop in on our four survivors, who are watching the approach, approaching planes on the base's radar screen. 400 killing machines are heading their way. Our heroes raid the armory and pick out the finest laser rifles. As the metal men crash through the fences, Kuno is the first to attack, but his spear has little effect. He takes a thud to the face as Ike and the others Darth Maul their way through the attacking, the remaining attacking robots. The two men drag Kuno to safety as Boyd makes it to one of the planes and begins strafing the robots from the air. A robot breaks into the armory where the girls and Kuno were hiding. Kuno grabs a sledgehammer and goes all Thor on the invading metal men. The three then find a high-tech tank outside and decide to take it for a test drive. They use the tank to destroy more of the robots. Out of ammunition and low on fuel, Boyd lands his fighter, but crashes into a robot that was standing on the runway. He is pulled from the wreck and taken aboard the robot transport. The large plane takes off with his prisoner, and the remaining robots begin their second wave of attack. Jill tracks the plane back to its base as a few remaining robots smash their way in, but Kuno drives them off. The two women and Kuno take a fighter and follow the robot transport back to its base. Meanwhile, at the, ba- at the hidden base, 
Boyd is wondering why the robots were programmed to kill all humans, and he is taken to the director. Boyd meets the master control program, a Russian cyborg named Dr. Dizlov <laughs> Yamarov. Now I'm going to start calling him Romarov. Yamarov. Romarov. Thank you. Jeez. Yamarov monologues that he is that he suffered from radiation burns earlier and designed his robot body to house his brain and heart. Real general grievous kind of stuff. But further ex- <laughs> So how does he smell? <laughs> Awful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he further explains that he predicted a war between the East and the West, and he created an army of robots to take over the world when the time is right. Real Roger Corby-style stuff. The alarm goes off, signaling the arrival of Boyd's companions. The rescuers enter the base to find the robots are in standby mode. Kuno smashes into the room, distracting the cyborg. Boyd kicks the gun from Romanov's hand, but takes a pow to the head for his trouble. Kuno takes his hammer and removes the cyborg's arm with extreme prejudice. High-tech science meets raw, savage power Kuno, as Kuno picks up Romanov and throws him over the edge into the computer below. Real Return of the Jedi type stuff. And the others make it to their plane as the robots wake from screensaver mode. The attacking robot planes, with no computer to guide them, real Landry kind of stuff, miss with every shot. Our heroes make their escape as a battered Romanov, having survived his plunge into the computer, makes standard villain threats of revenge and destruction. But Boyd responds with a threat of his own. If they ever encounter Romanov again, they will return and nuke his entire cyborg base. Back at the Canadian airbase, the surviving humans ponder their fate as they are the last hope of the human race to be continued. Very good. That was a really good synopsis. It's always hard writing synopsis. Always, you always think how much do you put in, how much do you leave out. But do you want to talk about the co- Did we talk about the cover? I don't think we talked about the cover. No, we, did. we didn't really talk about the cover. I actually like the cover an awful lot. Um... Yeah, I, I think that the, the the stylized coloring of the way that they did it, um, you know, it wouldn't play today. No. You know? But but back for what, it, you know, when it came out and everything, that is just like a really, really awesome, a, a, a incredibly attention-grabbing cover with the, the, the robot. And this is, you know, nearly 10 years before Terminator and, you know, any other kind of, you know, threatening robot movies uh, that we'd seen since. And that's just you know an, an awesome vision right there. Yeah, the it's a nice. The whole cover's nice. The his the, I don't know who designed the logo for Doomsday Plus One, but that's nice. It's a little retroy, but it's still cool. Uh, it is a nice painted cover, which I noticed a lot of Charlton books had painted covers. I think a lot of the E Man books yeah. were painted. Uh, that Staten did or Stanton. Uh, these colors are a little muted, but it's a nice balance, and the robot looks nice. It's obviously. Influenced by his Rise 2000 robot that, yeah. he's, that he's done, and this this style robot. So, yeah, he always gave his robots a little curvy, organic look to them, which which I've always liked. Yeah, he would later right. He would later, if you think of his say how his Doombots looked, which now I, I do have a problem though with the you know I, <laughs> I I just sit there and talk about women's makeup choices, but the. Uh, <laughs> The the blue, yeah, the two, yeah, the eyeliner that doesn't quite match the the rest of her super futuristic outfit. 
Well, it's the future. Yeah, I know. Yeah, who knows what color. Anyway. Um, I guess you could say this is his first Doombot. Yeah, yeah. Those Doombots look more like Sentinels with funky heads. Yeah, he had a more of that. He, he gave, that's when he gave his robots. Same with if you look at his guardsmen, like the, <clears> you know, the guys in, when we covered She-Hulk graphic novel. Yeah. The guys in the guardsmen's outfit, they have a more of an organic physique type human body style look these look more mechanical you know more parts more moving parts instead of simulated muscle right right hey i want to before we go on i just wanted to ask you do we want to talk about the ads now or after we've gone through the book uh let's wait till we go after after the book because there's one particular i want to talk about is it the ninja one yeah (laughs) the ninja (laughs) one is one of them yeah okay so I guess moving on into – did you have anything else to say about the cover? No, no. No, cool. Okay. Moving on in, we get something here that actually becomes very common for Byrne, and that is a recap of what's gone on so far, except he's put that really, really cool vision of death with the, the – what, what do they call it? A size? It's a size. size? Or yeah. a sickle. Sickle, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, standing there, but it's, it, I mean it's clearly death. It's a Mr. Death or something. He's come about the reaping. I don't think we need any at the moment. Hello. Uh, looking over the, uh, the the image of what happened with the nuclear nuclear war that went on. I still find it so hard to believe that, you know, somebody that could sit there and launch two missiles and fool everybody into thinking, you know, it's World War III. That's, that was standard. I mean, that was a standard plot. Yeah, uh, from any kind of if you're gonna get if you're gonna try to start World War Three, you're gonna get the two, the two bigs to go after each other. That's the way you would do it. I mean, there's a actually there's a very nice film called Failsafe where Henry mm-hmm. Fonda plays the uh, president, where it's similar to that, but it's it's more the plot of that is the they accidentally they accidentally release uh, a warhead that destroys Moscow. It's, it's completely accidental, but to keep the peace. He has to allow the Russians to nuke New York as kind of payment. Yeah. And, you know, but look at Spy Love Me. That's the same. That's the same. Strom, Strom, Stromberg wanted to start World War Three. Same way. Yeah. But a, a pretty well done. I mean, as, as a first page, you know, in here, this is kind of like, um, a, a, again, we're talking about Burn at the very, very beginning of his career. Uh, you see the rockets going on. This isn't, you know, as as stylized as that Fantastic Four fan book he did. No. Um, but you know, again, we're looking at the full penciled and inked. It's a little. You can tell that it's a little rougher by way of that. And then with the printing, it made it even a little bit more rough. Yeah. So you, the lines are real thick and heavy, or, or muddy, as you'd say. Are you looking at a scanned of the actual comic? Yes. Okay, that's what I'm looking at. So yeah, it, the the printing is pretty pretty bad. Yep. Now, because like on the second page, I, I kind of, you know, the submarine, the shot of the submarine there, I just, I, I can't understand what I'm looking at. I see something that looks like an almond. Yeah, you really can't. Well, i tell you what doesn't help, and if, I don't know if this is burned, if he did his own, his own lettering, these drop caps he's got in all these little caption boxes does not help. Do it in one, but he has it in every single one. And it's hmm. a little distracting. But, yeah, it's... And it goes a little bit with this whole, a little bit from the first, I haven't, I've only read the first two issues of this, but there's a, seems to be an abundance of over explaining 
And that's not yeah, the right word. I mean, yeah. it's, it's almost like, well, we want to, like, it really, this is really meant for a kid. And we want to let you know, well, this, you know, this is this type of plane. And this is, you know, this is where, you know, these are the kind where you're, you know, because they have to tell you what ICBM stands for. They spell that out right. for you. <laughs> but, you know, the um, the super big letters that they do, like the on the very first page where they say prologue in the all red. And then on the second page where they've got a faceless foe. It, uh, you, you know, those those are really done in a very, I, 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 you know, they just don't look as professional as the rest of the lettering does. Well, that's a little harder because you're not, you're not going to be able to, I'm sure that type of, that's, that type of uh, lettering almost is more artwork than just standard yeah. lettering. Yeah, and, and that's something that's just not as, as finely done as the rest of it. Even the coloring on it is uh, not complete. Yeah, the red could be a little denser. It could be a little richer. It's it's almost a, kind of a red-orange. Yeah, but, I mean, it, it, when you look at a faceless foe there, does it, I mean, is that supposed to be like flame edges? I think, it's just supposed, to be, I think it's supposed to be like a highlight, I think. I don't know if that's supposed to be, I think it's supposed to be the Earth. but Yeah, but what I'm talking about, like, if you look at the letter F and you see there's the uncolored part of it, you look at the bottom of the A, uh, the E and the S below, you know, they've got, Portions of it that are just not colored, and I don't know if that was on purpose or. I think that's a mistake. Yeah, yeah. I think that's just yeah. a printing mistake. I don't think that's meant to be to represent flames or anything like that. I think that's just either the plates weren't lined up or whoever colored it didn't didn't do a very good job. Of right. But we'll give him this. If you look under the capsule, he's used some type of zipatone to kind of do kind of a Kirby style uh, outer space effect instead of just doing. Yeah, it, black it made field. me think of. Um, you know, the if you watch early cuts of Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, you saw the black boxes around the Tie Fighters and such as they as they went around. Yeah, you that's know, just the mat. Yeah, that's the mat lines or the mat. mat yeah, and, and I I feel like I'm, I'm seeing a bit of that in the in the dark spaces there where he used Zipatone and he was still trying to figure out how to make good use of it for the. Yeah, I, mean, I, I give him I give him credit for trying something, experimenting something. It's, it's yeah. Okay, and. Then we're introduced to Kuno and the the woolly. Well, there's actually two woolly mammoths, but this one that's alive and attacking them. And why he got uh, in the previous issue, they explained that they they were flash frozen by heavy mm-hmm. rain to then sudden drops in temperature. That's why they were frozen, and that's what allowed them to remain alive until the the ice melting brought them back. Yeah, because Super Soldier Serum you know, didn't exist back in caveman times, right? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, I'm also trying to figure out this this black jet or whatever that is that's coming down on the boat. Mm-hmm. That's the yeah the fighter that that attacks him once. That's from the previous issue, but attacks him once and then just leaves. Now, is that a futuristic thing, or is that supposed to be like a Russian MiG? Or uh, I don't know because the other planes that are in the book seem to be conventional. But this could be. This came from, uh, as we'll find, the robot base where the yeah. uh, you, uh, the cyborg is, and that's my other question. We'll get to that when we get to it. But where all his tech came from? Because yeah. they have Russian markings, but did the Russians uh, fund that, or did was he working behind the scenes and create all this secret base, kind of a Red Skull kind of thing, and taking their money, but you know, working for his own agenda? So I don't know. True. True. And, uh, of course, on this next page here, we get to see a pretty good look at, at Kuno and Boyd. Um, 
Boyd in these shots looks more like um, made me think of the what was his name the the Human Target that DC was putting out around the same time. And I think it was those were the Bob Haney stories back then. But that's that made that shot there made me look think of later shots. He looks like Danny Rand from Iron Fist. All right, you know that would. That would make sense because he left this book to go. The first thing he did was go and work on Iron uh, Iron Fist, but yeah. But this one's got different, de- definitely a different look. He hasn't quite got the the women. You can see the 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 typical burn female face mm-hmm. emerging. Yes, but the man now Kuno. I can I, that looks early burn. Yeah, boy doesn't the, in this page, which is page I think four. Sorry, read these page numbers. Where that close up where he says, you know, anyway, we've got a more pressing problem here. Right. That's not, that looks like he's either trying to ape somebody else or that's not his style. So he just hasn't figured out his style yet. But Kuno definitely looks proto burn. Yeah, it is. It looks a little bit like. Very rough and sketchy. Yeah. But he's got that, well, when you see his chest off, he's got that burn hair that burn likes to draw. And in fact, Kuno looks a little bit like burn because burn. Kind of had that beard, and so I'm wondering if that's you know, is he inserting himself into the? I don't think so. I really don't. I mean, this is this is uh, you know really really big Tom Selleck big kind of. Yeah, he's just a big barbarian. I mean, that's you know that that look with skins and full beard and long hair. So yeah, but you know then on the the very next page you get to see that that complex there. Uh, Interesting use of the uh, zipatone. Yeah. Up above, but then you have one of those computer monitors that just looks like a whole bunch of <laughs> television screens or whatever. Yeah. Well, you can tell from this page and even the uh, the uh, previous one that Byrne is more comfortable with this tech and architecture than he is with people. Yes, because definitely. You can tell that this underground base is looks like. And I love the lineups <coughs> of the robots there. Yeah, and it just made those robots look so cool. It's not quite Byrne tech. At least not yeah. the the hideout, but the plane, the robots. Yeah, the the hideout actually makes me think of Legion of Superheroes of that era, or a little bit later than that, when Keith Giffen was uh, and and Larry Malstead were doing the uh, artwork chores for Legion of Superheroes. Um, that's what that top shot makes me think of. But the second one down, I kind of think that you know um, later on when Alex Ross was doing his Terminator: The Burning Earth, he might have been looking at this and channeling a little bit of that. Yeah, well, that's any. Yeah, it's any. Well, the layer to me looks like any James Bond layer, like yeah. any Ken <laughs> Adam designed Bond uh, Bond layer. And yeah, you've seen this this lineup robot. I mean, this is uh, the battle droids and you know Episode One. It's all the robots and iRobot. That typical. Or even, I think there was even scenes of Terminators coming off the assembly line like this. Yeah. Just lining up. But something else, I, before we get too far ahead, I had a note that I thought was odd that they were in a capsule. Now, this kind of goes back to issue one, but they're yeah. launched into a capsule, which looks like a standard kind of Apollo capsule. Yeah. Well, at this time, I know, because Skylab came out in 73. Why? Mm-hmm. And that surely everybody knew about that. Because they still could have had to leave the satellite. You know, if they went to end up to a space station and were on that, they could have stayed out longer. They still could have had to have left to come down to the planet. So I thought that was odd that they, there was no, since this is supposed to be 1996, there was no space station. 
Yeah, I, I don't think they even I don't think they necessarily thought that through. I mean, I, again, you know, when they sit there and throw out an arbitrary date for the future. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, 1996 and 1997 got to be used a lot as uh, future dates. I think that was what, uh, what RoboCop was supposed to be originally. And um, was it Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man? Um, what was the other? Yeah, Predator 2 was supposed to be like 1997. Yeah, that was yeah, Predator 2 was supposed to be just like five years in our future or four years, but something like that. But yeah, 20 years seemed to be, because this would be roughly 20 years from yeah, when the book true, was written. So that true. seems to be kind of a, a benchmark for, oh, let's, let's put it, or, you know, nowadays it could be 10 years. But, you know, just a, you know, age said, just a, just a, you know, that sounds good. Yeah. Arbitrary sci-fi future date. Which is funny because now that we're coming up on, because we just, we passed the, uh, was it, what did we pass recently? The, was it Blade Runner? The incident days for Roy Batty yeah. and, and for, um, I think, Pris have both passed. Uh, I, I, actually, I actually put a post out there for Roy Batty, <laughs> <laughs> basically to cherish those moments before they, uh, or they'll disappear like tears in the rain. <laughs> and we passed, uh, we passed up Back to the Future, their future yes. date, so... Yeah, I know. No well, we got hoverboards now. We have hoverboards. Well, I mean, they're, they're not like what we saw in Back to the Future 2, but still, we yeah. have hoverboards. We're getting there. Yep. Okay, so uh, the next page, I, is this page 6? I can't it's read the page numbers page down Page 6, yes. I think 5 has got the walrus on it. Page 6 is when the robots are starting to parachute out. Yeah, and, and this is a particularly muddy page for me. But not just that. Uh, on the bottom left-hand panel... Kuno standing there. That is one huge hand he's got. <laughs> and I can't even tell what's going on with his arm on the other side, on the left side. Is that his arm and hand? I think it's just balled into a fist, but it does look a little a little low. Yeah. Now, one of the things that Byrne is doing here, you notice how he's got um, Jill standing there, and she got the one leg stretched out, and the other one looks a little funky as it goes behind her. And then he's got... You know, one of her hands there down by her waist where she's kind of turned. He he definitely, at this point in time, had not worked out everything in his anatomy, especially when it came to the midsection of both men and women. And he, he did a lot of tricks like this to try to hide that fact. But there were some times where he just couldn't hide it at all. Well, it's a typical kind of dramatic pose. Yeah. But he does seem to have more success with Kuno. Maybe that's just because he's drawing a kind of an exaggerated uh, man. Yeah. And Neanderthal. So he doesn't have to be, he doesn't have to be subtle about it. He can kind of, you know, if he exaggerates something a little too much, same with, I'm assuming that is boy that's running. Yeah. That you're seeing in, in the, uh, in the foreground, one of the boots look typical burn boots, but, uh, his, well, no way to say it. His backside looks awkward. Yeah, uh, I, I, I was I was noticing that too as we we're talking about Jill there, and I'm just like, I don't want to talk about a guy's butt. <laughs> I made too much noise about uh, Green Lantern's junk a while back, so you know. <laughs> oh man, the shots of the, um, the 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 robots coming down though with the parachutes was really really cool. The next page is is one one of my favorite pages in the story, but I do have a question. Um, in the in the, the far right panel of that of the next page, you see Kuno 
He's got his spear, and he's going, Kuno, kill, right? Mm -hmm. But from day one, he never could pronounce Jill's name, right? He kept pronouncing her G. G. And yet he can say kill. How hard is it to say Jill? <laughs> well, I think that if, he's, if he pronounced the way he pronounced uh, her name, he wouldn't, uh, you would understand what he's saying. He, he does seem to, that's one of my notes, he seems to pick up English pretty quick. Mm-hmm. He seems to have no problem with really the concept of flight. You know, this is a guy that's from the third century, and he may not want to fly in it or fly, but he's, he, you know, the concept of flight is not all that alien to him. Yeah, he's not like Mr. T. In fact, he's in an old airplane, Hannibal. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> uh, I think the first page or second page, they make it, uh, he's, he's saying, boy, he says, you know, you fly. He goes, yeah, I fly that. And I think it's, Jill that says, well, you can learn to fly, too. You can learn to do anything we do. And my thought was, have you seen Battlefield Earth? Yeah. You know, when they find the simulators and they get these primitive humans and they spend a week in these simulators and some of these guys are flying Harrier jets. It's like, no, that, that doesn't, doesn't work. I'm sorry. Okay, there's a reason why that movie failed. <laughs> well, that was, that was one of... About a hundred reasons why the movie failed, but yeah, I know. But I mean, they didn't think anything through no. there. No, but yeah, you're uh, right. These two these two pages are nice. Uh, yes, it's a kind of a contrast with the, the the long verticals on the left, showing the robots coming in and kind of advancing, and then you switch to horizontal, and especially the bottom one. I thought that's a really nice. Uh, that's a nice pose for. That's a typical comic pose, but it's a nice uh, pose for Jill. Uh, she's, you know, stepping off that one foot. Yeah. And I like the way he's drawn the laser fire. It has kind of a liquid feel to it. Mm-hmm. It's not just a beam. It looks more of a... Uh, a a flamethrower almost, kind almost, of. Almost, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's almost flamethrower. And we know that, that pretty much anything mechanical does not like a lot of heat. So that's a good, good thing to use on the robots. Um, I did, I, you know, I mean, you were complimenting Jill in, in that or Jill's appearance in that shot, I, I had a problem with her backside. They're like, you had a problem with Boyd's earlier. Well, it, yeah, it looks like he's drawn. I can't tell. He's just having difficulty there, and I can understand yeah. that. You know, he just hadn't figured it out yet. And he, uh, I mean, you called her, I, what did you call her, Ikea? Ikea, like Ikea? I said, I pronounced it Ikea. Is it Ikea? No, I was thinking it was E-K. E-K? E-K. It probably is E-K. Maybe I'm spelling it. Maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, he appeared to keep her off to the side or out of the main picture a lot. Like, he, you know, he had difficulty working with her altogether. And a lot of her, uh, the art on her is very clumsy in in a lot of places. You know, like, he he wasn't comfortable with the Asian form. Yeah, but that doesn't make sense because other than her face, there is no, there would be no difference between drawing her as opposed to drawing Jill other than drawing her hair and her face. Mm-hmm. Now the next shot, of course, uh, the next page that is where Boyd gets in the plane, takes off. Boy, that's a plane that can take off really quick. I mean, I, I can't believe all the things that survived. It, you know, when they, they sit there and they talk about the nuclear weapons, they, you know, they didn't say it, but it basically made him sound like neutron bombs. Well, they, well but then that wouldn't cause all the heat and fire that would kind of scorch the earth. I mean, they did say in the first issue that it was, if you didn't die of the heat blast, that you basically you died from all the fallout. 
But then, of course, they also suggest that the fallout dissipated within two a matter years. of days. I mean, yeah. they were only yeah. up there six days, yeah. right? And then they're down. Yeah, then they're back down. So that's the, the but they're not worrying about radiation. They're not worrying right. about fallout or you know or anything. They're just going where they want to and using anything. I mean, they're able to to sit there and find planes filled up with fuel. I I, I mean, it, it it makes this the story move along. Right, but there are a lot of weird leaps in the, in the logic on this. Right, and you have to have some. It's not like Thundar barbarian level destruction where nothing is, everything's derelict and nothing works anymore. So they have to have something. And really, since it's only went six issues, we don't know how how they would have progressed on that. But I I did think it was funny that Burn being from Canada, he makes a little. Uh, crack about well, f- you know, about how great this Canadian fighter jet is. <laughs> yeah, little dig. I, I mean, to me, it was really weird that that all the equipment there survived and every single person died. Because again, that would that would say to me it was a neutron bomb. But well, I think they're they're calling that. But it, it's the what I think they do that to whatever fits the story. You know, it has to. Yeah. Well, we have to get the polarized skips to melt so that we can have uh, Kuno. But we need to have everybody dead, even though. But we need to have the structures surviving so they can use the structures. So right, yeah. So it's it's. But of course, you, and I know why they didn't do this. But there's no bodies. You know, this place would be littered with bodies. Well, they they did talk in one scene. Maybe it was the other issue that I read where they where they found a whole bunch of bodies and had to dispose of them. That must have been. Yeah, it must have been the first one because I don't remember that. It wasn't in this okay. one. Now the bottom of this page here, where he's f- f- flying the jet around, and he's you know, blowing up the robots and everything. Says the air to ground missiles were non-nuclear. The robots look really sketchy there. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, he, I don't know, his his ink and lines were definitely pretty thick on that, and and he didn't even want to show the bottoms of the feet, which normally he would have made that reflective and you would have been able to see the the bottom of the feet perfectly. He would have made some kind of intricate detail. Um, Yeah. It's not his use. He does, he is known to use, you know, big... um, Sections of black, especially if he's mm-hmm. doing like suits or if he's doing costumes and things like that. But yeah, here is just, I don't know if it was just he didn't have time or because the rest of them, I think he's trying to show the, they're being front lit because of the explosion. So there would be a lot of shadow on their back. I think that's what he's trying to, because you can see the, the, they're not as reflective as he's drawn them, say, even to pa- panel up or as a robot that's crashing through the next page when they're in the armory. Yeah. You notice how Jill's neckline keeps dropping further and yeah. further as the issue goes along? <laughs> I noticed that. Well, uh, you don't see – well, you didn't show it. They didn't show it in this issue, but when they land, she's wearing basically like a little one-piece swimsuit. Yeah, I remember, I remember she went up in the in that, in the swimsuit. Yeah, that was in her – the first issue, issue. That's, that's just what she wore. Yeah, these are their – these are actually all their winter clothes that they had, their survival suits yeah. that they had uh, – now, this robot that's crashing through, I don't know why in this image, because he's the same in the rest, but in that issue, he looks a lot like the RoboCop 2 and RoboCop 2. Yes. Kuno decides he's going to take go the sledge. Go all Thor on the guy. Yeah, go all Thor on him and decide, well, you know, I'm going to you know, do what and, I know how to do. And there's that funky lettering again where he wrote Smash, and he, he distended the bottom parts there. Mm-hmm. I think that's maybe to give it a, a sense of, uh, echoing, reverberation, or something like that. Yeah, I, I just thought that was really, really interesting, and it's also distracting to me. But the bottom right panel, 
Kuno standing there just yeah. looks so cartoony. <laughs> well, he looks he's so he looks distorted and compact and just looks wrong. Yeah. And I think this is the beginning of which we I, I didn't really cover the kind of not love triangle, but that she Jill is oh, yeah. obviously starting to fall for Kuno. Right. And and uh, Ikea is is falling for Boyd. I mean, she's already said she's in love with him, not not to him. Yeah, that or was all. Th- that was all through the first issue where she right. s- she secretly kisses him because nobody's looking when they crash. Yeah. <laughs> Thought that was odd. Yeah, but now this this next page is actually the page I, I actually put up on Facebook, and I've sent it to you in uh, on Facebook in uh, messaging. Oh, just that, the black and white page you said. Yeah, you I, I sent I sent you the black and white, and I sent you this one as well. And you can see just how the detail looks so better. I really can't stand the way he's got EK drawn there in that first panel. It looks like a kid drew that, you know? Well, her eyes look a little puffy, and and the way they've colored it, her coloring is off just when these two panels. Yeah. It's kind of, she has been drawn kind of a yellowish color on the right, and then in this other one, she looks more American Indian. Yeah, but that tank looks really, really awesome. That tank looks cool. I, I said it looks like something from UFO. You've seen a Jerry Anderson UFO? Uh-huh. It looks like one of their, uh, kind of reminds you of the shadow tanks or the shadow vehicles they use. And that big gun on the front looks so cool, and then we find out it's a flamethrower. And I'm just like, oh, what's the point? <laughs> but the coloring uh, of this really washed out the detail uh, on the tank and and so much of this, this page here. Um you know, and they tried to use multiple colors here. The green and the, I, I guess you'd call that orange, that, you know, they just don't work in this. And it really bugged me the way that, that it affected the uh, the imaging. Well, throughout this whole, and it's, I don't know if it's because this is a scan of an older book, but the blacks just look worn out and yeah. spotty. And it just, it's either the, from the printing process or it's just because it's an older book and it looks like it's just third to where it kind of wear through from the paper. Yeah. And then on the next page, crump. That's <laughs> how you attack a tank. Crump it. You got to crump it. <laughs> it's funny because, you know, the tank uses a flamethrower on the robots, and I'm sure it's effective because, you know, machines don't like heat, but that one almost looks skeletal when they're, when they're basically cooking it with the, with the flamethrower. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's, again, he's trying to show the, that's kind of the reflectiveness of the metal. But yeah. The, but even the one below that looks like something's blowing up in his face looks like he's almost like you can see he's got a skeletal structure on the inside. Yeah. And the these explosions are really sketchy. They're not quite that burn level of destruction no. yet. Although the flamethrower, yeah. the flame coming out of the tank is nice where it looks like it's dripping. That's how yeah. a real flamethrower looks. That's nice a nice effect. Yeah. And then that bottom panel... How many fingers does that robot have on the left hand? Because it just—I I don't know what I'm looking at there. I think he has four, but I think two are just in front of each other. It did, did look like he had kind of nightcrawler hands there for a minute, like he had just three. Yeah, well, and, then, and this is supposed to be end of part one, and we go to part two, and it's a, a full two-page spread. And that's yeah. This is probably my favorite panel because I love this splash page. I mean. Especially the, of the plane. Yes. You say the plane is, is so beautifully done that it, uh, that it just grabs your attention right away. Uh, like I said, you, you can always tell he, 
seems to have an affinity for architecture or, or anything technical because his lines are always sharper. Usually his perspective is right. It doesn't usually with his tech his stuff doesn't look wonky like it does sometimes with. Yeah, and with even humans. if it's photo reference, he's used something that's obscure enough that you don't you don't recognize it. Yeah, you know? it looks kind of like a like galaxy. Is that a C one? One of those big cargo planes. Except the, the tail fin is enormous. Yeah, and, and it, it kind of looks whale like, but I, I, yeah. I mean it, it's weird the way that is. It's pretty cool though. And again, it's it's got Russian markings, mm-hmm. but we find out later that. The guy, the cyborg, is not necessarily working with the Russians. So I don't. Again, I don't know how he kind of squirrel all this stuff away, or he's able to, how he's able to build his base. He was Russian. He knew it was going to happen. He just uh, bided his time, let it happen, and here he is now. Take over the world. Kill every human. Yeah. But, so what does it mean then to take over the world? Let's, if you have nobody to rule, that's what Boy tells him later. Is you're gonna you're gonna be commanding a, a dead. A dead world. I mean, but yeah. I don't I mean. Does that radar screen at the bottom of that page make you think of Battlefield, Battlezone, the video game? The radar screen. Are you talking about the tank looking? I'm not, what are we looking at here? Um, the the page after the double page. Spread. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to go play some battle Battlefield then, or Battlezone. Um. He's using some good tricks here in, in the, the panel above where the two girls are sitting in the seats to, you know, hide his deficiencies. And uh, it, it's working so far, but as, as we get later in the book, we're going to find some, some things. And the bottom right uh, panel where it looks like Kuno's supposed to be coming in there, uh, it just – his use with the, the big blam there and the explosion and everything – it doesn't look like it's a good day for Kuno. It looks like he should be getting killed right there. Well, and they do make make a uh, note that he's been smashed a little bit himself. But, yeah, you don't – are these robots not firing back at him? I mean – I don't know. See, the thing is the first time I looked at it, I thought I, uh, Kay's arm was actually Kuno's arm coming into where they were at. Yeah, but it's not. In her, but Yeah. Speaking it of that, her face, look at her face. Yeah. Her face is all – I mean, she should have had more of her more – of her, well, both the girls' faces are not very good. Yeah, definitely. The guy he got them on their bad sides. <laughs> <laughs> the robot being smashed is pretty nice, and, and I think it's funny that the uh, the other robot says, uh, "Let's leave." Says he's stubborn humans inflict damage on irreplaceable units. Well, <laughs> yeah. What did you expect? <laughs> yeah. Now. On this this next page where they show Kuno fighting the robot and the robot's missing an arm, did they? I mean, I, I guess he tore the top of his tunic off, or it got torn off while he was in the fight. Something he's got. Yeah. He's got a gun all Kirk. He's got his chest exposed. So yeah, but then you look at the bottom panel on the left, and just her sitting in that chair. That is just that's not pretty. Yeah, the torso is. I mean, it's not. I don't find it. Horrible, but yeah, for knowing what Byrne can do is just, it's the, the torso is a little. Yeah, and then the, the panel on the bottom right, really lacking in detail. Yeah, but that's, of course, I don't see when I, when he gets on board. And obviously, they're, they're, you know, they've got this, they're firing up this Canadian fighter. And yeah. he seems to be kind of startled by it. And the next thing you know, he's on the plane. Yeah, that was really odd. Now, next to him down on the ground, is there something written there? I don't know. It does look like something, but I can't read it. 
I know. That's going to bug me now. Maybe something's... Somebody else figures that out. Please let us know. Or zoom in on a better... I don't think my copy is clear enough that I could zoom in on it. Yeah, I'll have to see if I can pull out my Doomsday Squad issues and 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 take a look. Maybe I'll give a better perspective on that. But that that looks like a different jet on the ground than what they're showing in the air. But no, I I guess it's the same. No, well, yeah, well, because it looks a little bit like a phantom on the ground, but it's got the, I guess, our fuel pods on the wings to make it looks more like a, a saber. Yeah. But I had another note. Uh, what is it? Jill says, um, they're doing their checklist. Just, Here it is. Fuel tanks first. They look heavy enough to be full. They look heavy enough to be uh, That didn't make any sense to me. No, that makes sense to me. As a pilot, you're... you're uh, fuel tank is measured in I weight. Think, yeah, it's measured in weight. And so her gauge is going to say you've got such and such pounds or whatever instead of gallons. Right. Okay. Well, then I, I stand corrected. They're being a little more accurate about everything. Because, again, in the next page, we talks about having to take off. They give this whole long uh, dialogue about we have to take off. It's going to. You know, we need this much runway, and we need to be going this fast. We need to be heading at this many degrees. I'm glad they had enough time to read the manual. <laughs> yeah. Well, she, all of them could probably fly the planes. They need to if they're going to jet set around this world, I guess. Yeah. And Kuno was just sitting back there fixing his tunic. Mm-hmm. I guess he brought a needle and thread in his little <laughs> uh, loincloth somewhere. He's just waiting for some alone time with Jill. Oh, yeah. And right here we got... Uh, Boyd having some alone time with the robots. <laughs> and on the next page, you get that real Danny Rand look of him there. Yeah. Yeah, I almost half expect to see the dragon tattooed there on his chest. Yeah, especially with that kind of, they kind of showed his collars up a little bit. Now, this reveal here with Dr. Yamarov, you see him standing there, arms akimbo. You just see a part of him there. And so you expect on the next page, you're going to see a full-size shot of him and everything. And all you're getting really is his head. And I always wonder why he did the head there on the next page instead of showing the whole body so you could get a full full look at this guy and see, you know, just how he looks all together. It, it was just a, a weird choice in doing the artwork. Well, you think he would have been – this would have been maybe another splash page because this guy seems – to me, obviously set up to be the villain of this series. That he will, he'll come he's back. He's their Doctor Doom. Exactly. In fact, he's, he's drawn a little bit like Doctor Doom, except his head looks like uh, his Rise 2000. <laughs> yeah. It looks a little bit like... Uh, I mean, I definitely wanted to see more of this guy. I thought that his look was pretty cool, and I didn't understand why he hid him so much. If he just had a hard time you know, working it out. Well, there's not... He's not in the in this story a lot. He's he, he's kind of brought in in the, in the third act, and he's dispatched pretty quickly. Yeah. And you, again, you, I don't think we see, even see a full. Yeah, the only time you see a full shot of him is when Kuno picks him up and he's fixing to uh, Darth Vader him or Emperor him over the uh, edge of the <laughs> railing. Yeah. Yeah. And again, yeah. I didn't understand why the. I can understand the. He says the robots are capable of independent thought, but completely loyal to him. And why are they in like standby mode? Why are they not? He knows the plane's coming in. His automatic defenses were going to shoot him down. Why are the rest of the robots just 
in, you know, shutdown mode, but they're in power save mode or something. It doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't me. make any sense. I mean, it allows them to get into the base, so it's a plot point. I mean, it's a plot device. It allows them yeah. to get in and for Kuno to, you know, basically that's what he does. Is apparently barge into rooms. Yeah, now you notice on that page where it's got 75 seconds, 45 seconds, 15 seconds, and now. Yeah. Okay, and the the, the drawing of Kuno's face is just so craggy and cool, and it's got the bright, bright blue eyes. I've seen Byrne do this a number of times over the years, but I always yeah. like it when he when he does that, when he features the eyes like that, and he makes everything around it look like they've really got the scrunchy face going. That's yeah. That's that looks almost contemporary burn. That close up of his eyes. Yeah, I mean, it looks like he's jumping in sideways. And again, we have a uh, no. We don't have crash. Look, that crash was all busted up the way. But uh, the cyborg's face just looks weird. It looks almost like he's fixing to cry when he's kind of looking up. And you know, white boy says, "Don't shoot him." Like, why would he think he's gonna listen to you? He's fixing to. <laughs> Shoot you. He's going to anesthetize you to... And why he wanted him alive, I don't know. To brainwash him. He wanted to question Boyd. Yeah. Because yeah, he wanted he wanted to find out, you know, what kind of opposition there really was. I mean, it couldn't just be these three people, right? Or four people. I guess. He wants to know if there's any more humans around. Yeah. Yeah. But then Boyd kicks the weird-looking gun. What is it? Is that a ray gun? Well, I uh, think it's the one he was going to... Um, he was going to what he was going to. It's like a stun gun. He was going to anesthetize Boyd with that. So if he shot Kuno, wouldn't have killed him. Yeah. Then he kicks him out, but then he gets you know, like I said, he gets a wallop on the head for that, and then Kuno decides to, uh, in what looks like a literal little brief bikini there, decides to smash his arm off. Yeah, that's actually pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was that. It's that. Uh, you know, he thinks he's superior, but that robot arm looks a lot like early burn tech. Yeah, it is. Uh, it reminds me of the robot arms and for the uh, guys for the Hellfire Club, the guys yeah. that were the cyborgs. Donald Pierce. Yeah, and, yeah. exactly. Piercing. So it looks like. Yep, and there goes Kuno saying "kill again." Yep, and everybody's like, "No, don't!" <laughs> but he throws him into the computer console, and nobody bothers to go check and see if the guy's alive or dead. Oh, they they got a uh, you know they just want to get out of there. However, Jill's neckline has dropped even further, further all the way down to her navel. But she keeps unzipping. Well, even uh, Boyd's because if you look at the panel where he's getting elbowed in the head by the cyborg, it looks like he's got a white shirt underneath that. But yeah, the previous ones it was skin, and they all kind of unzip their they all kind of unzip their. Um, I mean, EK's Hygienics. got a white, like a white dicky underneath. Yeah, you think he's got a white dicky? Something, just like a an undershirt or something. Yeah. And then why the robots then decide to come, you know, come alive? Then <clears throat> I'm just glad the jet that they're escaping in is big enough to hold everybody in it. That's true. Well, it's true. The the way they they have it drawn on the inside, it's not like a fighter jet, like a two person, right. three person fighter jet. It's more of a more like a Quinn jet inside. Yeah, and then or or, or or the Blackbird from the X Men. Yeah, yeah, exactly. the The art on the uh, last page though is really sloppy. I mean, as the jets getting away from the base and all this stuff's blowing up, it just looks really. It's just really like it's sloppy. All, it's all done with just ink. It's, it looks like it's all done just with brush. 
Right. Kind of stuff Kirby would do. You'd see a lot of that would just do, he would just do with just kind of using an ink brush and then somebody would go along and fill it in with color later. Yeah. Now, on, on the last panel, is Kuno actually trying to read the book of Illustrated History of Flight? Is, he is trying to learn. <laughs> he's learning, trying to learn how to fly. Because he's looking at a model. Yeah. And they're like, oh, look, you know, he's so sweet. He's going to learn how to fly. And all of a sudden, he's got super hairy chest, which he didn't have before. No, he didn't have, it wasn't quite that, uh, <laughs> wasn't quite that hairy. But and then, of course, we get the uh, the starting of the is Jill and love, you know, falling for Kuno, which that would work out. She could be with Kuno, and then Boyd could be with uh, Kia. Well, I mean, I mean, really, if there's if it's just the four of them, they're they're going to have to swap. I mean, they're going to have to repopulate the species. Everybody's going to have to get with everybody. Oh, okay, Kuno doesn't have to get with Boyd. No, but <laughs> that would work. I mean, they're going to have to swap every now and then. It's just, you know, it, it's they got to repopulate the species. <laughs> but they can't honestly believe that they're the only ones left. Somebody's got to be left on Tasmania or New Zealand. Do you think they actually nuked New Zealand? I don't know, which was odd. In the first, in the first issue, they show that basically both powers release all their weapons which you think would be trained at United States and Russia. In Russia. But they show that every every Paris, London, every city right. got nuked. It's like why would they be trained why would they be nuking them? And apparently yeah. Canada came off unscathed. It's like everybody's yeah. left. I mean there's obvious, you know, issues with the story here because just because and then we've got, you know, again, forty years hindsight to yeah. to sit there and look at and, and be critical of it. But you know it's it's a fun story, and it's actually got me intrigued. So I'm gonna I'm gonna finish reading all of them. Yeah, it's a little. I thought the I thought overall the 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 writing was a little stilted, but I kind of chalked that up to kind of seventies, and maybe because it's Charlton too. They're you know they're not quite they're not you know they were not quite as Burns said they were the, the little company that couldn't quite do it. So they don't right, quite right. the level of DC or or um, Marvel, but. It had kind of a, a a Silver Age Marvel vibe to it. It had kind of that kind of feel, but not being quite as <clears throat> not quite as a, as imaginative as say a Kirby work or even uh, Stan Lee work. Right, but you know where you would find a book like this usually. You'd find it in a um, Whitman or you know the Gold Key samplers mm-hmm. of comic books that usually have like three four books in there. Yeah. And you'd find something like this, you know, packed in there with that in a Batman comic. If you're lucky enough to get a Batman, I always got like the Richie Rich or um, the little devil guy, whatever. Hot stuff. Hot stuff. Hot yeah. stuff. Good gosh. Oh, that was Harvey one. Yeah. Well, I thought- but I, again, I, I I I had fun with it, and I, I actually like the characters. I, but again, there's a part of me that, that is sitting there thinking like Walking Dead style. Okay, well, they they got to make sure they've got plenty of water to survive because, I mean, water's got to be the most valuable resource there. If everything's been hit by nuclear radiation, then water filtration would have to be the most important thing. And then I'm starting to think all the things that they're going to have to sit there and think about. No, of course, the writers didn't think about these things. And I'm just like, I need to let it go. I no, just well, need to yeah, roll with the story. If the radiation is going to dissipate within two weeks, then you're good. Yeah, I don't know that I want to drink that, that cup of water that was sitting there at Ground Zero, though. <laughs> no. Well, you no. mentioned The Walking Dead, and and I had a note that when they, the planes are first approaching the airbase, when the robots first attack, 
they say, well, we've got planes coming in. We don't know if they're friendly or not. And that is, it's very Walking Dead. Because Walking Dead now, the whole theme of that comic and the show is who can you trust? Right. So, you know, you, every time you meet somebody new, you have to establish, well, are they friend or foe? So that's kind of what this looks like. This is going to be throughout this whole series that ran longer. It's wherever they run into somebody, are they going to be friends with them? Are they going to, you know, try to kill them? You know, are they going to have to, you know, and it's going to be a little, it's got a little Omec vibe to it. It certainly has a very strong commandy vibe to it. Mm-hmm. And even though it predates it, it's got a, uh, it's very Thundar. It's very... Thundar the Barbarian. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was Steve Gerber stuff, wasn't it? Thundar? I thought Kirby did the design work for that. Yeah, I'm going to have to go look at that now. Because I, I remember Kirby there was a lot, it, lot said about Kirby that, did. I, I never looked into it deeply enough. I love Thunder of the Barbarian. I, I love that yeah. stuff um, ever since I was a little kid. I know it's supposed to be like a, a Star Wars ripoff with the Sun Sword, but I thought they differentiated themselves enough well, that it the, was... The Sun Sword I can see as being a, a Star Wars ripoff, but the rest is the rest is pure 70s because that's what my notes were. You know, this story's got its roots in, like, Logan's Run, Damnation Alley. Oh, wait a second now. Wait a second now. I mean, you had, you know, Thundar, who had the Sun Sword. Yeah, okay, that's, you know, it's Star Wars ripoff. But they also had Ukla the Mock, which, while he was like a giant cat there, he was a big furry beast. Yeah. So you you had your Chewbacca there. You had your Chewbacca, yeah. 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 Now, um... Looking at Thunder and Barbarian, yeah, Steve Gerber was the creator of the series, but Jack Kirby did do the character designs. Yeah, and you could, I think this look at that's pretty obvious to look at the... Yeah. I mean, it's that's got a lot cool. of Commandy in that, too, I think. You could call, oh, call yeah. him Commandy and then... Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so is there anything else you want to no, say I about thought this No, I thought it was interesting. I mean, it was... Uh, I think I would have been more interested in if Kuna was not in it. I don't understand him... Is he supposed to be like a surrogate for, for us, the audience? He's kind of learning, and they have to explain stuff to him, so we that gives them a reason. Exactly. So maybe, but of course, this day and age in comics, they were, you know, everybody was explaining everything out loud anyway, so. Right. But, or maybe they needed an action, you know, Boyd wasn't quite the the action guy, so they wanted a, a big, strong brute to do some of the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. He seems out of place, but... Until I read the rest, I don't know what to make of that. But it was fun. Well, I had, I mean, I, I'm kind of like you, to read you, the rest you look at the other works that Byrne did during this era. You know, not too long after this, you know, when he was starting at Marvel, he got to do the Champions, and Champions was one of those books where they just like threw whatever they could at the wall to see what would stick, and it's the most unlikely grouping of of heroes because you got your mutant contingent, you got your God contingent. <laughs> And you've got, you know, your your giant and, you know, Ghost Rider. So you got a demon. You got your Dark Force character. Man, it's crazy. Well, Champions to me, not quite the Defenders, but struck me as we have all these leftover characters that aren't quite in other books. So let's throw them together. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's like superhero soup. Yeah, now is it Champions or was it Defenders that was supposed to be like um – you know, an original X-Men book. Was, I guess it was Defenders, where they were going to make use more of Iceman and... Angel. And Beast. Yeah. And I, was, I, th- I think it was Iceman and Beast. I think and they, they, they used Angel a lot, uh, a lot oh, too. Okay. But that, yeah, that was, that was Champion. I mean, that was Defenders, not Champions. Yeah. 
We'll have, to, we'll have to cover the, the champions here at some point. Probably a little ways down the line because we got looks like a lot on our plate coming up now. Well, yeah, we got some uh, some big stuff. We don't want to tip our hat too much, but we've got some more Star Trek stuff coming, and yeah. this is going to be kind of our year of uh, extra Star Trek shows and maybe some commentaries coming down the road. Maybe. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to one yeah. or two. Yeah, do some yeah. of that. So. Now, look, looking back again at this book, though, you know, there's one thing that we wanted to talk about, and that was the ads. Oh, yes. Now, there's a lot of ads in here that are similar to what we've seen in the Marvel and DC books. You know, the prizes are cash, grit, and and whatnot. What's your favorite ad in this book? Oh, it's hands down. It's the uh, ninja. The ninja. Learn the secret powers of the deadliest killers in the Orient. The, the physio mental powers is it physio physio mental powers of the ninja. <laughs> That's great. This is and what, if you see the notice one at the bottom it says um, attention law enforcement agencies because <laughs> of the nature of the techniques revealed in this training manual we feel uh, we feel important to make this manual available to law enforcement agencies throughout the world. Please run for a discount price. Oh, that's greatness. That is just brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And it's, uh, we'll say ninjas were the men who passed, who passed anywhere at will, had the power to overcome every martial art, and were masters of invisibility. If you can read, you can master the theory of even the most closely guarded of all ninja secrets. Techniques of stealth and invisibility. The ninja's secret, the ninja's secret technique of invulnerability even while sleeping. <laughs> There's no price on this thing anywhere. It's priceless. Yeah. If, you can, if, you can, if you can be invulnerable while you're sleeping, it's priceless. Come on. It says here, ninjutsu is unbeatable. Better than judo, quicker than karate, more efficient than kung fu. I'm sold. Golly. If only there was some way to go back in time and buy this. You could probably find it on eBay. <laughs> I'm going to have to search around for that. I'm, I'm, I'm really peaked uh, by that. My interest is really peaked here. I'm tempted to take this image and use this as the cover art for this episode. <laughs> it has nothing to do with it, but I'm tempted to do it. Oh, that would be hilarious. That's right. Learn the secret arts of the Dailyest Killers in the Orient. Listen to our show. Yeah. Now, they've got a, a, another um, good full-page ad for Charlton Books, um, the Charlton Bullseye. Yeah. And they got that, that lovely Blue Beetle, and I, that looks like Paris Collins' version of the Blue Beetle, though I don't know if that, that if that's who that is. I, I can be way, you, way off. I, I couldn't. I've never read any Blue Beetle other than when he was – I've seen him in some DC books I've had. But. Yeah, I mean, I, I read the Blue Beetle series when it came out in the 80s, and that was all Paris Collins, and – I, I liked Paris Cullen's work on on that as well as uh, Blue Devil, which I, I'm I'm waiting for them to make a Blue Devil TV series. I think that would be a great, great TV series. I actually got a like from uh, as it uh, Dan Mishkin today on Facebook when I made a comment about that. So, and did you le- read this little dissertation on close to the last page, the Red Rage? The Last Red Rage. I started reading it. I didn't finish it. The the text. I did. Yeah, it, it was. It hurt, it hurt my eyes to try and read that. That's why I, I can't give up on it. Yeah. And I had no idea. And they don't say who wrote it. I have to assume it was the editor or it was Joe Gill. I would I would say so. I know each issue had kind of a, a text page that either 
gave you a little more behind the scenes. This looks like it's uh, before the. This is about the Russian premiere or the Russian before he launched the missiles. I guess I don't, again I didn't read it all because it's, it's yeah. a, little, a little hard in the eyes. Hmm. And then one of the last ads is one of my favorites: the hundred piece toy soldier set for a dollar fifty. You get a footlocker full of a hundred hundred toy soldiers. Oh yeah. And tanks, jeeps, battleships, cruisers. And these are the, the little green soldiers like they, they had in Toy Story. And didn't they get their own movie too? I don't think so. I, well, I know there was a bunch of games for like the... Uh, the uh, Xbox or Nintendo or something like that. Yeah, the the, the Wii. Yeah. And uh, others, it was those Green Army. Man, I always liked those Green Army and they were pretty cool. All right, you want to wrap this up? Yeah, you know, I mean, this this was a fun issue to go over because it it brought up a lot of nostalgia for me, uh, just you know, going over those ads. But you know, the 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 artwork, you know, I again, we 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 took a lot of hits on it. We we took a, took the piss out of it, but still, I mean, I loved it. I I, I yeah, love the, the early firm work. It's it's got that that pioneer kind of look to it. Yeah, you can see that there's there's the making of the man that we would come to love. Yeah. But it's not, none of it's bad. It's some of it's a little rough, but none of it's bad. Right. Your, your Roger Corman analogy was just spot on in my, uh, in my <clears throat> estimation there. What, what do y'all think? I, I think this was a, uh, a really good analogy on, on Tim's part. So hopefully you guys will agree with us on that, but let us know what you think. Uh, write us, uh, email us at gotta get burned at gmail.com. Or, you know, send us a little note on our, our Facebook page, uh, when, you know, on, on the uh, episode that gets posted. We'd really, really like to hear from you. Or give us a review on iTunes. Anything that you can to, to tell us what you're thinking, what you're feeling. And also, let us know what you guys want to want to see. Um, you know, we're going to do a lot of Star Trek this year, but we've got some other spaces open. We're, we're sitting there, you know, kicking yeah, around we're some open ideas. To suggestions. We're, maybe we need to, maybe we should uh, post that on, a, on our Facebook page and just say, you know, give us your, you know, top ten suggestions. We can kind of compile that. Yeah. Now, I actually uh, talked to an old f- uh, friend of mine today that I I see him like once every 10, 15 years, and we always you know, have it. You know, you pick up right where you left off. You know, it's one of those kind of friends. And he used to run a bunch of comic book shops around town. He you manage one and move over and paint, go to another one, and they always wrote stories about him in the the local newspaper here, the Star Telegram, because the guy was like the the most well known geek, so to speak. And I asked him if he had any John Byrne stories, and he told me he does, but it's something that we're going to have to meet and have a beer over. So I've, I've got to arrange that and, and, and see how that goes. Now, again, we don't want to sit there and get into all the negatives that may, you know, may have happened over the years because there, you know, there's a lot of individual stuff and a lot of people have got an axe to grind. Some people are just angry that he quit X-Men, you yeah. know. Well, that, and, he's got that right to do it. We're not, really, we're not here to, to talk about so much John Byrne the man. Yeah, not his character. His character. It's, it's yeah. more his artwork. So we're trying to leave out... You know, pretty much anything that's we're not going to, you know, talk about problems he's had with companies or, you know, disagreements yeah. with, the comp- or with, the, with individuals or why he did this, why he did that. You know, we're just here to kind of explore his artwork and, and, and revel in how wonderful we think it is. Yeah. And we're going to talk about his writing, too. I mean, we haven't really delved into, 
you know, some things where he just did the writing. We we uh, we talked about doing the um, action comics. Yeah. Uh, the angle with Art Adams, um, and, you know, amongst other things. Well, I think when and, we get into the Star Trek Fumetti's, mm-hmm. that's mostly his writing. Yeah. He's borrowing, you know, he's, he's cut and paste images. So that we can focus on. And we, we do some of his, um, we haven't done any of the uh, Fantastic Four. Right. We can talk about his writing there. there. Okay. Well, anyway, so tell us what you think. Let us know what you want. Um, uh, just, and also, uh, as I always say, and I, I sound like I'm really hawking it, be sure to use the Amazon link there on the corner of the website. Uh, it helps keep the lights on for the two true freaks. Uh, doesn't cost you a thing. Of course, you got to buy something at Amazon. Just use our link, and we'll get a little cut. You got anything else for us tonight? No, no. I, uh, just that I like this, and I kind of look forward to maybe covering some more of his. I know there's some of his emergency stuff I like to cover down the well, road sometime. But um, you know, it'd be cool. Is you know, we, here we've co- covered Doomsday Plus One, which was one of the very first jobs that he did. That sometime in the future we could co- cover Doomsday. Point one, right? Yeah, which he, he did in 2013. Right, and then he revisited that. So yeah, I'd be interested in seeing that. All right, well, let's. Uh, I know it's uh, bedtime for me, and I'm sure it's bedtime for you. And I just made some homemade chicken soup today, so I'm gonna give me a bowl of that, and then I'm gonna have the sack. All right, <laughs> all right. For third degree burn, I'm Brian Hughes. I'm Tim Elliott. Have a great day. <laughs> Bye.
Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gotta get burned at gmail.com that's g-o-t-t-a g-e-t-b-y-r-n-e-d at gmail.com drop us a line and tell us how we're doing if you're interested in any of the books we cover in the show just head over to tutufreaks.com and use the amazon link to shop this doesn't cost any extra but it really helps support the shows until next time this has been third degree burn all right i'll be mayor